Living Room Logic. Okay, everyone, welcome back to yet another episode of Living Room Logic. And today I am very excited to uh, be with Dr. Claire Watson. Thank you so much, Claire, for coming on the show. Thank you, Aidan. Pleasure to be here. Dr. Watson is uh, Marley's Engagement Research Support Officer. She's a social scientist and an environmental campaigner. She's also co-author of the book Campaigns and How to Win Them. So, Dr. Watson, could you just tell us a little bit more about yourself and your research interests? Sure. I mean, I I trained as a social worker many moons ago, and Mm -hmm. then I have spent years kind of involved in environmental groups and projects, Mm -hmm. and a lot of them at community level. And in fact, when I wrote that book, I have to say it was in the late 1990s, so I'm surprised that you've dug it out. But um, it was, you know, I was (laughs) was very involved in campaigning and particularly Mm -hmm. on environmental issues. And we realized actually that a lot of people didn't quite know how to do it. And we, of course, thought we were doing it very well. I used to work with Greenpeace, so I'd learned a lot of tricks of the trade. So we put the book together then. And then since then, I moved to live on a um, a small hill farm in West Cork near Bantry. And my partner and I built a straw bale house. We put up a wind generator. We had solar panels. So we really went into kind of the techie, low carbon life. And we it was a bit of a version of the good life. So we grew our own vegetables. We had various different animals. And we experimented with how you could be self-sufficient, really. And I think after maybe, what was it, 15 years of that, we realized, gosh, this is hard work. And not everyone Mm. is going to want to do it. And we were kind of evangelists for it. And we were feeling you know, we can do it and we're doing the right thing. And so everyone will follow us. So we would have um, open walk walks around the farm. We did a lot of publicity. And my my partner then, he, he actually went up for election for the Green Party. So we were Fantastic. very, okay. very keen to get the message across. And this was kind of in, what, the 27 or 2007, 2008. Mm-hmm. We were really kind of out there talking about climate change and about the importance of respecting and protecting the environment and at one point I just kind of stopped and I said this is crazy the only people we're talking to is people like ourselves you know so we'd organize Mm. an event I remember we showed the Al Gore's The Inconvenient Truth uh, film Mm. we showed it around Mm -hmm. West Cork and various venues and really only the same people that we knew already were turning up people who already knew the issues and were really really interested and were probably doing quite a bit about it themselves and I thought gosh there's something going on here. We're not reaching out to the wider population. And so, of course, then in my judgmental way, I said, what's wrong with everyone? You know, why don't they get it? Are <laughs> yeah. they fools? And yeah. then I thought, come, come on, Claire, now let, let's do a little bit of internal thinking here. So I started reading and I, um, you know, because of my social work kind of background, I'm interested in psychology and in behavior. Mm. So I started reading a lot, any book that I could get a hold of really at the time. And then I put together a blog, which I called Chasing Hubcaps. So I put up about 21 articles online Mm. and it was really for the environmental movement because I I felt that it was us that wasn't getting it. You know, that we were Mm. kind of preaching to the converted and we were preaching in a way that made people feel blamed or shamed or felt guilty and they felt judged by us, you know, so. Yeah. I kind of produced the blog um, so that internally in the environmental movement, we could have a, a debate about this, which didn't really happen, actually. It's, I, I think people don't often want to think that they're doing the wrong thing or they're taking yeah. the wrong approach. We kind of believe we're doing it right. 
which is another psychological flaw. But um, yeah. so in the end, I thought, look, I've got to be more organized about this. So I approached UCC and I ended up doing a PhD on the topic, looking at, you know, how do you engage people in climate action? And I focused particularly on community energy. So that got me into UCC and Marai, and then I have stayed there and I'm, I'm part of an engaged research team working mm. with the Great Dingle Peninsula 2030 project. So could you tell me, do, do the Irish public have a good understanding of environmentalism and climate change? Uh, has our perception of the environment and the climate changed in recent decades? Yeah, I mean, I think there's been a, a huge shift because I've been around this issue probably for about 30 years. Um, mm. And I would have noticed a huge change, particularly in the last five or six years. And I think mm. this has been backed up, up by research by the EPA and ESRI where they've showed, you know, up to 96% of Irish people know that climate change is happening. You know, so mm. that is a very clear kind of um, very sense high. that, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, 85% are worried about it. And maybe, what is it, 90% um, feel that Ireland has a responsibility to do something about it. Now, the ESRI report said it was slightly different. They said 70% of adults are, are worried. But it's very high, mm. you know, if you take the, the those percentages. Where the, the difficulty is, is if you drill down then into what people think or know that they can do about it. There's a there's a mm. less of an understanding around what are uh, the activities that cause the greatest damage and what yeah. are the most important actions that people can do. So that's where we're much fuzzier. I mean, I think one of the bigger problems with climate change is it's what, what they call a wicked problem. So it's very complicated. Mm. It's multifaceted. It affects really all aspects of our lives and what we do and how we live. Um, and there's no one easy solution. So it's not like the hole in the ozone layer, for instance, we learned that, you know, it was aerosols were the problem. So we had to cut out the, the, the problem. And then we see that there, there is um, a change happening. Climate change yeah. is much more complex. And then if you look at energy transitions, like we're being asked to move from the use of fossil fuels into renewable mm -hmm. energy, but that's very complex because, you know, our whole system, our infrastructure, our technology is all set up, even our roads, you know, that they're all set up for us to be driving, to be using yeah. fossil fuels. So you not only have to change the technology, you have to change the way we get the new technology and the way we use it, you know. So mm. the, the learning curve is quite large. The other problem is climate change is it seems very out there, you know, so for the, you know, certainly for the, the first kind of 20 years when we were talking about it, it seemed distant to people. We were talking about the polar ice caps or, got, you know, the poor old polar bears and the melting yeah. up in up in the Arctic and, you know, big storms somewhere else. And it would come to us down the line. And as yeah. humans, we're not very good at looking at things that are way in the distant because we don't necessarily prepare for the future. We live for the here and now. Mm. We live in the present. So it's mm -hmm. hard for us to think, OK, we have to do this so that we prepare for the, the future. So mm. the message, it'll affect your grandchildren, probably stuck with a lot of people because they thought, oh, sure, that's grand. That's miles down the road. We'll fix it before then. It'll be great, you know. So yeah. it didn't mean that you had to do any action right now. We're also more likely to respond if the problem is in our faces, you know. So if it's immediate, immediate if it's vivid, we are more likely to jump and do something about it because it's directly there. Um, yeah. And for instance, if someone said to you, look, be careful, there's a hole in front of you. Don't fall into it. 
I would say, oh, sure, I know, of course I won't, because A, I know what will happen if I fall into it. And I also know how to avoid it, you know, so I can walk around it. So, of course, I, I do what I'm told with that. And to some extent with the pandemic, we um, we very clearly knew what we had to do. And the messaging was clear, you know, protect mm. yourself, protect your friends. This is how you do it. This is what you need to do. And we were given very clear guidelines about wearing masks with climate change it's really um, much more complicated. We're basically yeah, asking absolutely. people to change our lifestyles, you know. Everything that we do and yeah. how, how we heat our homes and how we charge yeah. our phones and everything in our house. And how we drive and how we collect our kids. And you see, a lot of our actions initially, I mean, very basically, they're, they're driven by habits, you know, so mm. we drive our cars. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We don't even think about it. We get in, we start the engine and off we go. And sometimes we, because if it's a routine journey we're taking, we don't even think about where we're going because we know it. It's in the back of our heads, in our subconscious. Um, Yeah. So a lot of what we do is habit driven. A lot of what we do is um, kind of autopilot, autopilot. Yeah. And routine. And, you know, this is what I do and I'm used to doing it this way. And it's actually quite hard for us to suddenly say, "Okay, I'm going to stop doing it this way and I'm going to go this way. You have to Mm. make a very concerted decision and then work out how you're going to change it. But the other thing Mm. we're influenced by and a lot of us probably won't admit it is that we are influenced by other people around us. We're influenced by peer pressure. You know, what will they think Mm -hmm. if I do this? I don't want to be seen as a bad parent if I don't Mm -hmm. drive my kid to school or if I let them walk in the rain. You feel you're being watched and you don't necessarily want to do something that's different from the herd. And you also are um, kind of influenced by, by social norms. So we do things because we kind of are expected by society to do them. And we know implicitly like what not to do. So, for instance, I'm not going to poke my nose now, particularly because I'm on camera, but I I just know (laughs) that's not acceptable and it would be rude if I did it here. Or, you know, I'm not just going to stand up and walk out of this this interview. That's rude. You know, so there are a lot of things that we know we're expected to do. So we're, we're expected to have clean clothes. If we don't, it shows that we're not making an effort and we're shoddy or whatever, or we're mm-hmm. poor and none of us want mm. to appear that we're not making an effort or we don't necessarily want to show that we're poor. So yeah. that means we have to wash our clothes a lot to keep them clean, particularly with kids. So we're using the washing machine more. So if we're asking yeah. people to cut back, we have to see what social practice is involved in the action we're asking them to do. And we have to help people look at that. And, and then it falls down to us trying to change our perception of that, is it? Yeah. And I mean, I think what what I'm learning over the last kind of, well, definitely the last five to six years is that it's very hard to expect people to act on their own. So, you know, I don't know Mm. if you remember, there was a campaign called the power of one 
and it ran through television and then SEAI took it up as a social media campaign. And yeah. it was about how one person can make a difference. And I mean, that is very true. You know, if we all act all together, if we act together, it works. But what it also does is it makes us feel we're the ones who have to do it and uh, we're on our own. And if we don't do it, there's something wrong with us. Uh, whereas mm. if you work together from the get go, so let's work collectively within communities, within groups, you then work together. There's peer pressure because you're all in there trying to do things together and you're putting pressure on each other maybe to do things better. There's mm. a sense of camaraderie. It can be quite fun. And there isn't this sense of fear that maybe if I step too far, I'm going to be judged by people. You know, when you go together, it, it, it's a much more safe kind of way of doing it. And only I mean, if you if you look at society, you can break us down into three groups. One group is the early adopters. You know, they, they're out there. They're at the edge. Environmentalists probably are there trying new things. We're risk takers. And then you'd have prospectors, you know, that the, the progressive people in the middle and they mm -hmm. would be looking at how do we progress jobs? How do we give people good incomes? How do we make sure that there's a good economy? And then mm -hmm. the, the third group is this, what they call settlers. And they're people who, um, you know, maybe are, you could say they're a little set in their ways, um, but they yeah. are very good at preserving history and they may not be so uh, likely to change, you know. So when you're talking about climate action, it's important that you understand that there's different kinds of people possibly in the room or you're trying to give the message to different kinds of people out there. So one of the mistakes we made within the environmental movement was I think, and we're learning now not to do it, but we were thinking that everyone was like us. So we would yeah. give the message in the way that we could understand it and oh, the message okay. would energize us. But we didn't realize that there was a third of the people were worried about the economy and saying, what on earth are you saying? Because will that create jobs? What about the stability? And others mm. were saying, you know what? That's, that, that's, it's not so right to change. And you know, why would we, when we have mm. to preserve this? And, and what about how good it is now? And, and why would we change yes. what we're doing? Because it's, it's, it's so nice to live right now. Yeah, so I understand. That's it. What I find so interesting about this is that you are almost using these psychological strategies that were working against you and you're almost using them now in your arsenal to promote action. Yeah, and I think that's, you see, very practical because if you're trying to go against the grain, it's really tough. Whereas if you uh, go with the grain, you have a better chance. Now, I'm not mm. saying it's plain sailing, you know, because there is an, in, an, an inert fear in us to think that something bad is going to happen. You know, we ha it's called the optimism bias. We kind of want to believe everything is grand. So, okay. you know, it'll be fine. And should we hear it all the time? And that's a very necessary part of our, psych of our psychology because mm -hmm. we need hope and we need to know that things are going to be good in the future for our children. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so giving people bad news is not necessarily the answer. So what, again, I think in the past, a lot of us were telling people how bad it's going to get. So we thought that if we give the apocalyptic view of storms, floods whatever and this is how yeah. it'll affect you if you don't act now we thought that that would actually help to activate people and it because it had activated us because yeah. we understood the context within which those messages were being given but yeah. for people who don't know anything about climate change and who live their lives in a different way and have different priorities and maybe different values that yeah. doesn't work at all and it can actually be counterproductive so mm -hmm. it can push people into denial 
or into mm-hmm. apathy. And denial, again, is a very good kind of trait to have in that it helps you through the bad times. Like if we really took to heart a very, you know, a big crisis and we really kind of took it on board, we can get into, can get depressed or we could get into a very kind of poor state of mind. So denial sometimes helps us through that by saying, mm. you know, it's not happening or it's not happening that way. And, you know, why there's nothing I can do anyway. Um, but it isn't great if we're trying to get people to act, you know, because we don't right. want them to go into this cage and say, well, there's nothing I can do. You know, it's not happening. Um, and apathy is the other problem in that people then could sit back and say, if it's such a big problem, what can I do? You know, mm. there's nothing I can do, which is another argument for collective action. Well, actually, if you do it with your neighbours and your family and others, then you can. Another thing I've learned is that if people take an action, particularly if it's something that may be difficult for them or they feel they're losing something if they act, they need mm-hmm. to know they're making a difference, you know, and they need to know that that action is worth it. Mm-hmm. So that's, again, the point of being within a project or within a group where you're learning why you're doing it and you're learning the impact of, of it. Because we all know that when you do something on your own, you don't get maybe as much done. Mm. When you work in a group, you tend to. I mean, most people work in teams yeah. in work yeah. and you work in a team because somehow you get a lot more done. Yeah. That makes perfect sense that, you know, we, we use it in the workforce all the time. We should use it. Yeah. for these more social issues. But but we also have to bear in mind that some people are more introverted. And I think that showed through the pandemic that actually some people mm. felt the pressure was off to socialize and to be in teams. Great so they point. were happy enough to, to work on their own. So there is that there mm. are introverts who may find that more challenging, but their skills can still come into a project. You know, they can contribute by doing some research or by, you know, um, organizing some event or whatever the, the many things that they could do yeah. where they don't have to go up and speak with all the community that's it they yeah. don't have to be giving the speech or organizing the people they can be doing background work so again mm. when you're working with people it's about recognizing people's strengths and um, what energizes them and what de-energizes them i just kind of had a thought as well the fact that a lot of stuff has moved remotely and we now have this kind of infrastructure to work remotely that's probably even more good for people who are introverted to get involved in things. You know, they're like, oh, God, I don't want to go to that big town hall event. Yeah. Well, maybe I can just, you know, we can have a, a Zoom stream going and people can can be involved in that way and feel more comfortable in doing so. Yeah. And also, I mean, it really has helped uh, organize people or bring people to meetings if if it would have caused a lot of traveling or having to get a babysitter or whatever, you can now have a Zoom meeting where everyone can tune in for the hour and it doesn't take an hour on either side to either organize or to get there, you know. So it gives you more options. But we did notice during the pandemic that um, we missed the in-person meetings in community Mm. because there's something you miss when you're not with people, you know. You, you You can engage, but there's something about even putting your arm on someone's arm or giving a hug, you know, that physical contact with people. Um, yeah. It's really important for us. So you need you need a blended mix, I think, of it. It's it's neither one way or the other. OK, and that makes perfect sense. Um, yeah. That sense of camaraderie, it tends to start 
when you're physically there with people, mm. you're doing it together, you feel more connected. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. You talked about climate denial or maybe just denial as a, in, in general an apathy. But another thing that keeps coming up is climate anxiety. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about that? How how does that work? I haven't read a huge amount of research on it, but uh, but just kind of watching and anecdotally hearing stories. I do Mm. think that there are and I would know some people who have worked in the environmental movement for years. It is very hard if you truly get the science, you know, and you really have read into it and you may have worked Mm. in it for years. There is an anxiety emerging now because the pace of change seems to be quite slow and we have this deadline now, you know, so we feel we have to have major changes done by 2030 and then 2050. And Mm -hmm. if you look at where we're at now, you know, our our emissions aren't going down, you know, so we're we bounced back after the pandemic in terms of driving. And, you know, we still kept using a lot of energy in the pandemic anyway. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think people feel a bit despondent and anxiety anxiety comes in then because you just feel anxious about the future you know and you feel that what you're doing isn't having a huge impact because there would be times i'd be kind of i would i would not read something because i oh i don't want to read that that latest scientific report i don't want to because i know Mm -hmm. what's in it what Mm -hmm. i try to do is actually look at where i mean i'm in a lucky position because i work with mara i do have a an open door into policy circles. So I do meet with policymakers now and then, and I can see that there is a lot of work happening behind the scenes, you know. Mm. So there's a lot of preparatory work happening within the departments, within state bodies, within businesses, um, which you would hope then will start to bear fruit in a couple of years time, you know. So if you're doing massive change, it you can't just flip into it. You have to Absolutely. change people people's ways of doing it the infrastructure whatever so all that does take time so i feel the next kind of three to five years are critical and we need to see that things are progressing during those years where i feel that the anxiety has been felt most at the moment is probably with young people Mm. they have come to it you know in a fairly um full-on way you know over the last few years and they it's like they got the whole kind of truth of it within Absolutely. a year you know and then there were the climate yeah. strikes and those amazing kind of young young people coming out and getting actively involved and they had a huge impact like i'm mm. sure they know the impact they've had but i can definitely say i've seen it within parents within policymakers. Every, m- most people if they're not a parent are have nieces or nephews or have young people somewhere in their family mm. circle and it was very very important for people to be given a good kick by the young people. So th- so they've done us a massive service. But yeah. I think for some of them, by taking such a great leap into the issue, they're wondering what their future holds. You know, so for some, mm. I think they have to be supported and we have to be mindful that with our messaging, that we don't push them further into anxiety and that we do respect their wish for change, you know, because it's very yeah. important. Yeah. So there's a really big balance here. Now, that's really what I wanted to also talk to you about was, you know, I'm I'm nearly not a young person, but I would consider myself still a and young I'm person. And I'm definitely now. not young. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel that that young people specifically on all, you know, all of the different social medias, people are scared mm. of climate change. Mm. It's yeah. it's not a, you know, because young people tend to feel 
like they can do less than people who are older and have more uh maybe higher up jobs and more power and more influence and etc etc i think that is maybe something that governments really need to work on and organizations could should maybe you know you talked about there's three types of people well there's also different age ranges of people so it's like maybe the strategies for communicating to people Mm. should be different not only within their what bracket do you would you say you put them in you know maybe there might also be um another variable there is is age bracket young and the old divide we have to be very careful that that doesn't happen because if you look in society Mm. older folk have more money in general you know that they have savings or they have a pension coming through or whatever or they have mm-hmm. bought their house, you know, not everyone, mm-hmm. obviously, but and yeah. young people are struggling with all of those life changes and life steps, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I always think that the antidote to climate anxiety is climate action. And I think mm. if we act, we feel we're doing something about it, you know, that it is very hard if we just read and we absorb the awful kind of messaging around how it can be or, or could be. So it's really good to get stuck in, get involved, because you yeah. get a sense of agency then, and mm. you feel you're trying to do something about it and you're having your say. So that's step one. But the other thing, what gave me great solace, I think, is reading history and looking at historical documentaries. And I mean, I don't mm. know if this is a thing, but for me it really worked because I realized that I was looking back and reading about the First World War, the Second World War, the famine, you know, it's quite eclectic in my in my reading choices. But I was seeing how society came out of massive um, difficulties, you know, and challenges. Yeah. And I think we have to hope and have the hope that we will get through this, you know. Yeah. And the vision is that we will go to a better place because we all want life to be better. And the truth is, if we can change our actions for whatever reason, but if they are related to emissions, we will end up with quieter cities, hopefully less stressed life, better communities. We'll be doing stuff more locally. We'll have more mm-hmm. local jobs. You know, we'll be producing food locally. You know, all the different actions that are required actually may make our lives easier because we feel that at the moment our lives, it would be awful if we changed them. But if you, we can all think of aspects of our lives that we could do with changing, you know, and that we maybe don't need to have so much stuff. Why are we consuming so much? It's like it's mm. a, this treadmill we're on. And to make ourselves feel better, we buy something else, you know. Mm. So rather than looking within and trying to become calmer and maybe more mindful, we're hanging on to consumerism and shopping to kind of solve that for us or racing mm. off on a holiday you know, I mean, I'm I'm kind of intrigued and I understand it. Like we've had two years of a pandemic and we're all bursting to get to the sun or to get to a two week holiday. Is it going to be the wonderful holiday we think it will be that'll solve all our woes? You know, we, we always have something outside of ourselves that we think will improve how we feel or yeah. how we look, you know, whereas really uh, maybe if we could if climate change and climate action helps us to step back a little bit from that to do less of it and to look at what's important to us in our lives, you know, and in, in within our own well-being. It almost feels like this movement and it's more than a movement now. I feel like it's it's everywhere. Mm. E- almost everyone could 
benefit from this yeah one more question i wanted to ask you before talking about some of the the specific projects that you've been involved in i really want to hit home this message here with how we can better promote action mm-hmm. what what are ways that governments and organizations can encourage people to act more on climate change and yeah. what, what have you found works <clears throat> and what doesn't well i suppose speaking directly to, to what i've ended up doing is is we really feel that resources should go into communities you know resources should be spent on projects and initiatives that are working with people on the ground there's yeah. a danger that a lot of money will go into a new website or a new way of spreading information, you know, or mm. something that will be national. We will do one big thing and that will change everything, you know, mm. and it can often. So, there, you know, in, in, I think it was about 2008, there was a big website with a carbon ca- calculator put on it. Um, and the idea was that everyone would go in and calculate their carbon usage. Sure, of course, people didn't go in and use it, you know, and it had cost a yeah. lot of money to do that. So mm-hmm. what we're learning in Dingle is is very much you need to um, support and empower people to come to the table, you know, that that and, and that takes time. It takes effort. And, mm-hmm. it, you know, people may not be queuing up at the door to join or to, to get involved in projects. So you need to kind of go out there and draw people in. And that takes resources. Mm-hmm. But the other layer, I'm, I mean, I'm saying don't just give information, but you do need to give information as part of the mix. You know, so it's really a 10 pronged approach, probably, you know, one of which Mm. is very much work locally. You know, there's different layers of what else we need to do. But one is clear messaging. I think people are confused, you know, so they they, they hear one message from someone, then they hear something about agriculture, then they hear about something about, you know, um, retrofitting or cutting out meat or you have to use public transport. It's like it's coming, you know, really hard (laughs) and fast. And you think, well, I can't change everything and I'm not going to do all that tomorrow. Sure, I might as well stay where where I am because I don't know where to start, you know. Yeah. And then the denial hits in and then everything. Yeah. Or you feel resentful. There's a kickback because that can happen. If you feel you're being blamed because people are saying you're not doing enough, then all this Mm. stuff comes at you and you you get a little bit belligerent and say, listen, what are you doing up there? What are you as a government doing? So we need to see leadership from the government and also from public representatives and people in the public eye. We need to see how more of them are changing their lives, you know. Mm. You know, whose house has been retrofitted? Let's have a look around some well-known person's house and how they're doing it. We need more of that kind of examples from the top and we need more policies from the top. But we then also need the uh, thought leaders like every community has very well respected people within them, within the community. Mm. So Mm. we need to draw those people in who then other people will change because they see those well respected people getting involved, you know, so. It's about getting the thought leaders at the top and at the bottom visibly acting and getting involved. You mentioned Dingle and I really want to learn more about that. Um, I think you're talking about the D- Dingle Peninsula 2030 project. Yeah. yeah. Um, could you tell me a bit about the work? Well, tell me all okay. about the work you've done um, in that. And if you want to talk about any of the other projects or anything mm. else that you've learned that you want people mm. to to really think about. In early 2018, um, the Dingle Hub, uh, based in Dingle Town on the peninsula, um, mm. there were there was a guy, a guy called Brendan Tui, who used to work in the civil service. Um, uh, he is actually chairperson of Marai, and he also mm. is a board member of and helped to set up the Dingle Hub. So he yeah. came up with this idea, and often often projects begin with one person's idea and one person's vision, and this is a, a good example of it. He created this vision of trying to 
transition the whole of the Dingle Peninsula to a low carbon future. You know, that the, the peninsula wow. looks at its emissions in all ways, you know, transport, agriculture, um, houses, whatever, heat, you know. Mm, so what he did was he drew people together. So mm. we're four agencies coming together and each with different things that we wanted to do. We wanted to do a bit of research and working out, you know, community. How do you engage community? The ESB networks wanted to do trials on literally energy trials in people's homes. You could yeah. were interested in the community development aspect and Dingle Hub were kind of the, the mainstay of it. But they also had a, a, a need to see that jobs would be created out of it, you know. So we yeah, came absolutely. together as a, what we now call or we then started calling a collaboration, a collaborative initiative. And we yeah. started having monthly meetings and um, being very clear. Our main aim was that we didn't, as four agencies, bamboozle the local community. We wanted to involve them, but we didn't want to confuse them. And hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We didn't want to be doing things separately on or with the community and then overdoing it, you know. So we had a very coordinated approach mm. from the beginning and a great little team of people. So we started setting up projects and ESB networks were straight off the gun because they put a call out looking for people to volunteer to have their houses retrofitted. So they chose five ambassadors and they mm. retrofitted their houses. They then gave 20 solar panels to 20 households. They did mm. some battery trials. And then in the last year, <clears throat> they gave electric cars to 15 people to okay. trial them for a year. Now, unfortunately, the pandemic hit in the middle of that. So a lot of, of the activities that we were trying to do and hoping to do around that we could, we had to do online. But still, you know, it, it worked out. So they did their three year project. Dingle Hub got involved in various different projects, particularly working with farmers. They, there's a big project there now linked to the EU Plutus project where they're they have sensors on far, on 30 farms where they're mm. looking at moisture meters and they're looking at various aspects of their soil management and grass management. There's also an energy West Dairy Farmers SEC. So they are looking at their sustainable energy and they're looking at um, maybe putting collectively putting solar panels on their roofs. We ran a course for community energy mentors with Kerry Education Training Board. So we upskilled 10 people. Um, around the issues and we're hoping that they're now diffusing into the community and helping to get other people involved. So we're, we're, we're trying to kind of be multi-pronged, get people involved in projects so they become mm. active and then they, you know, particularly in the ESB networks trials, people then were ambassadors within their communities and within their friends, uh, their per circle of friends, helping to encourage them to retrofit. Now, a lot of the changes will be not short term. You know, we're hoping to see 
we're already seeing more solar panels on the Dingle Peninsula than in other areas. Yeah. So it's beginning to to filter through and we call it the diffusion of sustainability. But we won't mm. really see the full impact, you know, for quite a few years. The strategy seems to be the best strategy to start from the ground up yeah. Yeah. rather than from the top down. Yes. And we were lucky with Dingle in that we had Brendan. So we've also been able to bring in national stakeholders. So we yeah. call ourselves kind of hybrid. We started on the ground, but we brought in kind of ASB networks would be a ah. national agency. Marai is. But we so we we did a both and, and we have connections and we have partnerships in projects with Gas Networks Ireland. They gave mm. money for feasibility study to an anaerobic digester. You know, we've got Kerry Education Training Board. We've got SEAI linked in. So mm-hmm. we're drawing in and we actually had Minister Eamon Ryan down last Friday for a visit, you know, so Brilliant. we see our role. It's it's a, it's an experiment and it's a pilot mm. project. So we're willing to to trial. And we were lucky in that we had the money from the four agencies to pay those of us involved. Um, mm. It's been hard to get other grants, but we've managed to get a few. Um, but we were lucky in that we were able to provide people to start this work on the ground through the different agencies. It's much harder if you're starting from scratch with a bunch of volunteers because you don't necessarily have people to the to do the coordination or the project management. Yeah. What we're also doing down there, and that's really Mara's kind of input, we're doing uh, what we call reflective learning and evaluation. So we're keeping track of what's going on down there. And a lot mm. of my role is co-creating with the team down there, um, actually looking at what have we been doing? What are we learning from it? What maybe mm. hasn't worked? What could work better? What are our recommendations for policies? So on our website, we have, I think it's about 13, what we're calling learning briefs. So we put them then in writing and we, we agree that what, what comes out as the finished product. Um, mm. And the idea is that it's available then, a- apart from us learning from the process, because when you go through this evaluative kind of process, you, you yeah. really understand what you're doing and mm. you don't make the same mistake again, or you learn from on what you can build, you know, but we, we've, we've benefited from that, but we also have um, have those written pieces that are available for other groups to read and mm-hmm. for um, policymakers and who, whoever wants to read them. And the hope is that maybe some people won't make, they won't maybe go down that route because we've shown, well, actually, we had to seg you from that route because that didn't quite work. Or yeah. this, you know, or they might get some inspiration from some of the things we've done. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And what is your vision for our future in terms of environmental action can do you see projects like the dingle peninsula 2030 scattered across the country is that how you see this happening some funding from the top but also some from the bottom is that how you see us actually really making this national yeah i mean i think to draw people in on the ground you have to have something local happening and i mean there are other Mm. groups out there so there's sustainable energy communities that are um, under the wing of, of SCAI, you know, Sustainable Energy Ireland Authority. But yeah. a lot of them are voluntary, you know, so there's community energy groups as well. And, you know, Temple Dairy have set up a community energy wind farm. So there is stuff happening out there. So we're not the only ones. I mean, I have to say that. Of course. But of we're course. doing it probably in a bigger way because we had more people and more resources to set it up. Yeah. Um, and we're doing it kind of trying to look at the whole area and every aspect of 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 life and, and energy use, etc. But mm. um, I think it will not spread if it isn't resourced. There's no question about that. Like groups just yeah. cannot spring 
from being a voluntary group where people are working hard, they have their own lives and they're coming together for meetings every now and then. And then some people are putting a hell of a lot of work in in their spare time. But yeah. it is never enough, you know, and, and, and burnout can happen in each local region there needs to be a core team of people who are there it's their jobs they're paid to do this there are certain skills required for this because it isn't easy you know i mean i have to be honest we we could say yeah it's brilliant what we're doing down in dingle but there are challenges you know and Mm. and some people you know there might be local resistance in in the area for whatever against a wind farm or there may be people feeling really put upon because they they can't grow or cut peat anymore you know there may be local resistance so you have to be very skilled, I think, to draw people in rather than causing a conflict and having another divide within the community. So community work and community development is a skill, you know, and Absolutely. we can't presume that people can. Ju- I mean, some people have it instinctively, in fairness, and they don't need to be trained and they're just brilliant yeah. at it. But we can't yeah. presume that you can dump, say, an engineer who's used to, he knows all about renewable energy into coordinating stuff at it. There's a different skill set, you know. So it has to be resourced, mm. but also we have to accept that every community is different. So people often ask us, can you provide a blueprint then for other communities from what you're doing in Dingo? Mm. And I straight away say, no, because actually Brendan Tui isn't in every community, as an example. It <laughs> yeah. started up the way it started because he was the initiator. And another community may have another initiator with other ideas and other ways of there's many ways of skinning this cat. You know, you can come yeah, at it from absolutely. different directions. So it's about trying to provide resources for the coordination and the engagement and all that work, but allowing the community to kind of decide what they're going to tackle first, which projects they want to go for, what their interests are, whether it's biodiversity or agriculture or transport. Mm. And then they can build on that later on, you know, um, but the resourcing is key. Yeah. So we need to resource and we need to train some yeah. community engagement officers across the country. It's a tricky one because we've thought about it in Mara is how, do you set up a university course? Do you do an mm. adult education course? What do you do? Do the education training boards maybe run it, you know, mm. um, or do you mentor people, you know, because someone may be in the role and they're just struggling because they don't have a full skill set. So do you give them kind of bite sized courses? Almost like an apprenticeship. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because, you know, it can be off putting if it doesn't work. Or if you suddenly realize, oh, my goodness, I've just exploded the community or something has happened that really failed. <laughs> yeah. You know, so yeah. maybe networks and support kind of organizations. But again, they don't run on their own voluntary steam. <laughs> again, they have to be resourced. And I mean, I know it's awful to keep talking about money, but in relation mm. to, to climate change, it is a saving. If we invest now in communities, we're not mm. going to be paying the fines to Europe because we haven't met our, our targets. Our we're not going to be hopefully dealing with the, 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 the worst effects of climate change down the tracks, which will cost a fortune, you know, yeah. that we would be putting in the building blocks to help us to make the changes. So it's actually an investment in the future mm. rather than mm. just giving money to, to local communities. Not to mention we might actually create even more jobs and a better cost of living and all of this stuff. And this is where the hubs come in. So there is a push to have more of the hubs involved in this kind of work. And I know mm. Ludgate Hub my in my neighbouring Skibberings, I live in Ballet de Hub, um, mm. they're very keen now to move into this sustainability space because what they've shown in Dingle is that the hub is there to give people work desks, to help them set up businesses, to help create jobs. But they are very much in the space of supporting changes within the community. And they see mm. sustainability as being the way forward for jobs. 
you know, retrofitting would bring in loads of local jobs if we really get yeah. going on it, you know. Mm-hmm, and I mean, mm-hmm. local transport and setting up local tourism. They're, they're looking at tourism. How can you do it in a more sustainable way down there? So that'll bring in more little businesses and more, you know, farm diversification, go into ecotourism, have less cattle, maybe. You know, so mm. there's it is all tied up with our economy and with jobs anyway, you know, which can mm. only be good. Thank you so much for this amazing conversation. And I really think that this will stir a lot of action and ideas in in our audience's minds. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Aidan. This is the end of the podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time. If you're feeling generous and you're not completely skinned, why don't you give us some of your money join our patreon join our patreon join our patreon join our Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.